on the tee from Australia, Adam Scott. There it is, Adam Scott. Expect anything different? Brilliant. What an up and down that was. In your life have you seen anything like that? Welcome to the clubhouse. Yeah, good everyone, and welcome to the clubhouse. Great to have your company wherever you might be right around Australia. Mark Allen, Julian Bayard with you. Hey, Marco. Good to good see you, Jules. Yes. I love this week. I love the Players' Championship. I know it's uh, not a major, but it's still the fourth best tournament in the world. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shame. I'd love to see that PGA tart it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Speaking with uh, Mike Clayton, we, we should play what Mike Clayton had to say about the PGA. Yeah. Uh, we might play that a little later in we the will. show. Yep. It was good listening to Mike during the week. But basically, he said there's no love for the US PGA anywhere else outside of America, which is very accurate. And also, we've spoken about this before, also with the US PGA being played right at the start of the NFL season. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't kick away no. the way you want it to kick away. Yeah. It doesn't have the pizzazz right at the start of the season, does it? No, no doubt about that. Yeah. yeah well, well, I mean, when the, your showpiece events are uh, four mm. months into the year. Yeah. Look, the new commissioner, um, he wants the new US tour commissioner, he wants it played now. He wants the US PGA played in this week. I think we've spoken about this we before. Yep. Um, and then the Players' Championship to be in March. So that's what he wants. I think that would work better. Mm-hmm. I think it would make the USPGA more important. Unfortunately, and we had this, this was brought to our attention during the week as well. If the USPGA was in May, it would have to be really late in May to bring the northern courses in America into play because you want them played on those courses. Yep. Uh, there, there are some great southern courses that would look magnificent this year. You know, like we saw Quite Hollow last week. I mean, Quite Hollow looked magnificent. That's in the south, and they have the um, well, they have the Queensland type greens, Bermuda greens, they're called. And even though the the Bermuda grass has got so much better, yeah, I mean, so much better, um, it's still not what we want to play majors on. No, that's one of the things you'll see this week. Since they moved, once upon a time, the Players Championship used to be two weeks in front of the Masters. Greg Norman won it in '94, and famously said, "It's a great warm up for Augusta." Mm-hmm. And they didn't like that. No, the US too <laughs> hated that because they wanted it to be, you know, their showpiece. It was the best field in golf. It was the, they played for the most money. And the last thing they wanted was it to be a nice warm up for Augusta. Mm-hmm. So they ended up moving it to May. Um, and because they moved it to May, it was a little bit hot down in Florida in May and they couldn't rely on the bent grass greens. So they made them Bermuda. Mm. And that's why we're seeing funny bounces on 17. Once upon a time, we never used to see the bounces on 17 that we see today. Uh, and the uncertainty. You can see when players hit now. It's mm. made the the Bermuda grass on the 17th Island Green. One of the most famous holes in golf now. Yes. One of the reasons that it's much harder today than years ago is because of the uh, Bermuda grass. Mm. Which is kind of good because it's a very big target. When you actually play the hole... You stand there and you think, how the hell am I ever going to miss this? <laughs> you know, if there's a little bit of wind or if yep. there's a million dollars on the line, then yeah, I can imagine what That's goes right. through your head. That's but right. when you just rock up and play with your mates, it's no big deal. Yeah. Unless, of course, you're playing for 500 a hole or something stupid. Anyway, <laughs> like, but like the, you do on a Tuesday. <laughs> but the Bermuda grass, um, it certainly made that hole harder. Yep. And it, it has given the tournament a different edge that it never used to have. It was a better tournament. When there was bent grass greens there, and that's one of the reasons why. I know it's only subtle, but for golf purists to have a tournament on Bermuda greens, where a major tournament, you know, a champion, a major champion is 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 
wanted at the end of the week. Well, it just doesn't. It's just not quite the right fit. Yep. I think the way they're headed with the there's called a dwarf Bermuda now, and then there's a dwarf dwarf Bermuda, and that grass is headed in the right direction. Some of these, I reckon, when we're close, we're probably ten years away from having something that is perfect and very similar. The less grain you, have, and the reason Bermuda grass is is the issue is because there's so much grain. You can have a putt that if you put a builder's level on it. It, the builder's level will tell you that it's a right-to-left putt, but because the grain Goes the other is way. growing towards where the sun sets, the ball will go the other way. Yep. And unless you understand the greens extremely well, then it can be a bit fluky. Mm. And that's why the bent grass, even though bent grass has grain, you don't get that situation with bent grass. And yep. it makes it a true test and fair for everybody. Yep. That's the reasoning, anyway. It's yeah, fascinating. I love the grass chat. I love it. I think yeah. it's. I think it's brilliant. I'll tell you what. Growing up, you had to know every single and... grass. You had to know yeah. every single. You had to know what happens when you chip off Kaikuya. Mm-hmm. You had to know what was possible um, uh, hitting out of. Uh, well, they call it Kentucky bluegrass over there, but but just cooch grass. Yeah, as we know it. You know, when the when the cooch grass gets up, mm-hmm. then you've got onion grass. Yeah. Then you've got uh, bulldog grass, <laughs> and what's possible, what you can do, and and what to expect when you take a divot out of bulldog grass versus just rye grass in the rough. Mm-hmm. Rye grass is a really sticky grass. I, I could go on for you because yeah. for you go from one when you when you play on tour, you go yeah not only from one climate to the next, but one country to the next, and you had to learn what is possible and not possible um, From the grass. with all the grasses. And this is one of the great things about golf. If we really want, now I'm on a roll. <laughs> one of the great arts of becoming a fabulous golfer is diagnosing the ability to diagnose your lie. Yeah, I've spoken to you about this in bunker. The real art in playing bunker shots is looking at the lie and understanding immediately what is possible and what is not possible and understanding what you have to do to get the ball r- relatively mm. close. That goes with all shots. So particularly with chipping and pitching, um, into the grain, down grain, off different grasses. Like if you chip into the grain with Kaikuya grass, it doesn't matter. If you chip into the grain with what we play on, which is basically cooch, it's, it's a whole, you've got to be really careful, yeah. not, not off Kaikuya. No. Into the grain and down grain on rye grass that we see at Augusta. On chips, it only just kind of slows down your spin with a chip into the grain. Down grain, you can spin anything. Mm. You can do whatever you like. Yep. Um, <laughs> then, of course, there's putting off the green as well. I mean, with that ryegrass that is you know really prevalent in American golf courses, putting off the fringe, even though it looks like you can do it, looks really smooth, it's very sticky. Mm. And it just won't. The ball will bobble. And once the ball bobbles when you're putting from off the green, you've got no control. It's a lottery. So you've got to chip it. So look, yeah. there's all those things that you learn when you go from, from course to course. And let's see, to me too, even if you're just a weekend warrior, go and play different courses. Yeah. You know, call your mate up who's at a member of somewhere else. Go and do it mm. because you will learn more. You'll understand the game better. And if you understand the game better and you get better at diagnosing lies, then your 85 will turn into a 79 pretty quick. Yep, love it. You know what I uh, rolled up to golf on Tuesday, Marco? Yeah. Loved it. The great, greatest sign in golf. Yeah, what's that? Winter rules now in effect. Eee, smart. That's down at Beacon Hills. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, that, look, I, I love everything they're doing down there in Beacon mm-hmm. Hills. 
So winter rules. Give us, run us through some of the winter rules and some of the things that your committee has done because yep. I bet if there's a bit of mud on the ball and you're on the fairway, you yeah. can clean it up. Pick up and replace. Preferred lives. Beautiful. Uh, what else? What other sort of winter um, rules have you got going winter down Winter rules there that's uh, – or the main ones are the, the carts on the fairways. Yeah. So that you pretty much have to drive up the side of the fairway the whole yep. time and then you walk across yep. to your ball. So yep. you don't get the big tyre marks and everything right, on eh? the fairway, which I think is terrific. Yeah, that's good. Can um, you drop out of tyre marks if you're in a tyre – once upon uh, a – that used to be a rule in golf where – Yeah, I'm not sure. If you're on a sandy yeah. track and there was a – you know, uh, one of the greenskeepers had yep. driven their ute mm. down the sandy track and your ball was in – uh, a tire mark you once upon a time you get a drop out of yep. that the, perhaps the greatest thing you can do though Marco is if you I only did it once because I yeah. played horribly but you drive the ball down the middle yeah. and it might plug and it you know yeah. just rolls off to the side of where the ball and you're sitting down you've got a big chunk of mud on your ball yeah, you yeah. pick it up and you might have 130 in yeah. and you sit it on the most luscious piece of grass <laughs> and you sit it right up <laughs> and you just get the most beautiful swing at the ball yeah Oh, it's sensational. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that the people at Beacon Hills are looking after their members. So many golf courses, they, they want to treat their golf course like they're playing an Australian Open or a US Open every week of the year. When you know It's just not possible. Mm. You don't have the budget to do it. So in the middle of winter, when the ball does plug into a fairway, it just pops out. Yeah. You've got mud all over it. Mm. Some committees just go off stiff. Just hit the ball with the mud all over it. I mean, seriously, folks, let's let's enjoy golf. Yeah. So many golf clubs around the country, they're not golf clubs. They're almost they treat their members like they're it's a boarding school. Yeah. No, 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 no. We don't do that. We are we, we, we stick to the laws of golf. Yep. And if you know, if, if we haven't said you can ugh, I mean, come on. Yeah. Once winter comes, it should be. If your ball has mud on the ball, regardless of how mud got on that ball, you can mark it, wipe the mud off and put it back in the same spot. Mm-hmm. And if you're really fair, I mean, if you're not at a sandbelt golf course, for instance, then uh, if you're on a clay-based club, then not only can you mark your ball and wipe the mud off, but then you can sit it on a nice mm-hmm. bit of grass. Yep. Just look after. I mean, you want people playing golf. You want people wanting to come and enjoy their game at their golf club. It doesn't change the rating of the golf course. Yeah. It might change a daily rating, yep. but it's not going to change the, the ACR, Australian course rating. No. It's not going to change that at all. But you're going to have happier members. Much happier members. They're going to be enjoying their golf. If they enjoy their golf, they spend more. And then, you you know, you're not going to be on your hands and knees begging for members to come because mm. your golf course will be fun to play. Yep. You can't treat people like they're in boarding school. Mm. Do this, do that, do this, do that. This is the rules of golf. <laughs> you know, you have the ability to make your own rules. Local rules. You can make your own local rules. Yeah. You can say, no matter where you are on the golf course, if there's mud on your ball, mark it. Wipe off the mud and put it back. And if maybe, here's a great rule. This is what they should do. In rough, if you've got mud on the ball in the rough, you mark the ball, you wipe the mud off, and you've got to put the ball back exactly where it was yep. in that rough. But if you're on the fairway mm. and it's you know, you're on a clay-based golf course, then you mark the ball, you can wipe the mud off, and then you've got a handspan. Hand That's all we have. Yeah, hand a handspan or a foot, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So not far, six inches, whatever. Just yep. be fair. Wipe the ball off and put the ball on a decent lie yep. so you can enjoy yourself in the golf course and you're not continually digging because that's what good players do. This is the other thing. You know, if the ball's always down oh, in a hole, up the bloody... you've got to take yeah. the biggest divot in yeah. the history of the game to actually make the ball do what you want to do. Yep. But... If you clean the ball up and you put on a nice lie, you don't have to take that big divot anymore. No. So you're actually looking after your own golf course you are. 
by doing the right thing by your saving members. Saving the fairways You're is the toughest the time of the year. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a hundred reasons to do it. But the old crusty types who think they know better, and you've got to, you know, please, <laughs> just get off the committee, you blokes. And let people who understand and want to enjoy golf, put them on the committee yep. and watch what happens to your golf course. Absolutely. Sensational. Hey, uh, regular listeners of this show yeah. would know about uh, your putting masterclass. Yes. A weeks ago. How'd you go? Not bad. Yeah. A bit of work to do. <laughs> bit of work to do. It's hard yeah. to take what you do. So this, it's amazing how your mind works. Mm. The way you practice your putting, the way you told me, mm. uh, is that you basically get up, plonk the club down, you don't care really too much about the alignment, and you just go whoosh. And a confident stroke is much, much better mm. than, than an accurate alignment. Yep. I, can pr- I can promise you that, yes. folks. Making confident strokes, relaxed confident strokes, I'd much rather be in that spot yep. than being aligned perfectly every single time because mm. the you, you're too much attention to detail Correct. makes you stiff. Yep. So it's actually hard to take what you do on the driving range or on the practice putting green onto the golf course at first because you've probably had 15 years of going the other way, That's trying right. to be exact, trying exact, be, exact. And that was what I was trying to do. I was trying to be so perfect and so precise. It doesn't and work. It didn't work. It Whereas doesn't work. You're sitting on the practice screen and you might have a 15-foot putt. Yep. You, just knock, you knock three out of the four in every doesn't time. doesn't work. <laughs> have you seen the movie A Beautiful Mind? Yes. Russell Crowe? Yes. John Nash, the man he plays in that movie, a little bit off. You know, mm-hmm. He's got autism or whatever yep. the hell he had. A little bit off. He won a Nobel Prize. For, for this theory in economics to where, remember the beautiful girl comes walking in mm-hmm. and all the blokes are attracted automatically to this beautiful girl and the periphery, all of her friends who are an attractive girls themselves, they almost disappear. No one cares about them. They all want to go to that one. John Nash won a Nobel Prize because he basically settled for second best. And then everybody wins. Mm-hmm. You know, Instead of everybody focusing on being absolutely perfect, if you just focus on being around the mark, yep. then life works better. Yep. And it's exactly the same with putting. So do, be John Nash. Mm. Don't have to be perfect with your alignment. Be thereabouts, be relaxed, and make that confident stroke. Yep. And I said this to my playing partner, Marco, because he plays off 18. Mm. So he gets a shot a hole, which yeah. is just daylight robbery, by the yeah. way. Anyway, um, that is. so whenever he gets on a green in regulation, yeah. and he's got a putt for birdie yeah. for four points. I yeah. say to him, mate, just bank the three points. Yeah, not just get close. it down there. Yeah, you might be ten foot, or, and he would he he gets sets up on the birdie oh, part, and he lines it up, and lines it up, and lines it up, and yeah. lines it up, and then he'll belt it five foot past. That's and it. You go, no, just bank the three. That's just it. Bank the three points. All get you it can close do, and knock it in for par. Uh, see, this this is the other thing, Jules. You got me going. Well done today. The other thing is we're not putting on billiard on billiard tables. No, there are. Heel marks and yes. spike marks. Imperfections. And areas where people have been leaning on their putter head. Uh, the grain goes one way, not mm-hmm. the other. Uneven cuts with the mower. Yep. All kinds of stuff. And that's not to mention pitch marks that are all over the place. Ones that have been repaired and ones that haven't. Yep. They're everywhere. And we're lining up these putts on the putting green like it's a billiard table when any one of those things can affect the ball. It's another reason not to worry. The only thing you should worry about is making that beautiful, relaxed, confident stroke. Mm-hmm. And if you make enough of those, more and more putts will drop. You won't hole every putt. Who's the guru of putting? What's his name? Oh, let me think of his name. Uh, uh, he's Phil, Phil Mickelson's coach. Oh, I'll think of it in a tick. Yep. A guru. 
one of his great experiments that he did, he got to a PGA tournament and he made this ball race. And it basically ran down this slippery dip. Exactly the ball rolls down exactly the same way every time. And he set this ball race eight feet from a hole mm-hmm. a, on a PGA tournament hole. He rolled 100 balls down the ball race and 99 of them went in. Yeah. Then he let it there stay there and people walked past it. People were putting on it. All the pros during the air caddies, the whole lot. And then at the end of the day, after the grass had grown and after there's been some imperfections on that six-foot, eight-foot mm-hmm. putt, he rolled another 100 balls down the putting race that hadn't moved. How many went in? 62. 62. So from one, basically 100, 98 or 99, that went in when the green was perfect, down a ball race, unaltered, to 62. So the moral of the story is don't be exact. Anything can happen when that ball's on the green. Just like when you see those slow-motion putts, you see them yourself, folks. Mm. They bounce all over the place. Even Mm. though they look smooth to the naked eye, they bounce and they wobble. They do all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. The best putters have perfect pace, perfect holding speed. That's all you should really worry about. Mm -hmm. Don't get over, I don't know, over-exact. Just relax and do exactly what you do on the putting green. And for all those reasons, for all those reasons, you've got to do it when you've got a pencil and a card in your back pocket and every shot counts. Yep. You've just got to find a way of yep. tricking your mind that I'm just on the practice putting green here. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it, this one, even though I'm trying to just hit it two foot the past number the number of hole, times I was thinking that when I was lining up a putt going, yeah. Yeah, just, just hit it like a practice putt. relax. It takes practice. Yeah. It takes practice. You probably see, If you do it every time you play for the next six months, you're probably six months away mm. from it really sinking in and working. But yeah. once it starts working... Away you'll go. All right, we're going to get to a break, Marco. Plenty to get through. John Daly had a win. I can't believe we haven't talked about that yet. Amazing. (laughs) Unbelievable. We'll talk about that next. All right, we'll take a break. This is the Clubhouse. Julian Bayard, Mark Allen with you. We'll be back right after this. In your life, have you seen anything like that? You're listening to the Clubhouse. Welcome back. It is the Clubhouse right around Australia. Julian Bayard, Mark Allen with you. If you do miss any of the show, make sure you download the podcast. Just search for the Clubhouse on iTunes. too easy. Listen back. Missing back to all your master classes, Marco. Mm. Just fast forward to the end of the show. Uh, John Daly had his first win, I think, in about 13 or 14 or 15 years, something ridiculous. Oh. Did you see the get-up that he was in first? Well, I'm going to get it up. The, the stars day. and the stripes, yeah. uh, the belt, the shoes, the shirt, the whole lot. He bogeyed the last three holes, so like clearly nervous coming home. The talent that this bloke's got is and has always been undeniable. Mm. Uh, if you haven't seen his the, the ESPN documentary... The 30 for 30s, great series that they do. All, every documentary is fantastic. They are good. But Very if you're a golf lover, hit it hard, which is all about John Daly. Obviously, the double meeting uh, because he hit the ball so far when he came on the scene and he also hit it pretty hard off the track as well mm-hmm. uh, as far as the drinking. But you, you see the person that he was back in 1991 at Crooked Stick and, and what he did that week. And, you know, when he when he hit that final drive right down the middle, when he hit that drive, from tee to green, he got a standing ovation that week. That's never happened before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you watch the 30 for 30, the commentators say the hooping and hollering that we've never seen before. It's true. Yep. Golf had never seen that before. He hit this drive down the left-hand side of the fairway, water on the right, mind you. Um, there was still danger that something might happen. He still couldn't quite trust him. And right throughout the round, in probably the last two rounds, 
because it was the first time so many of us had seen John Daly, and certainly the ones at the golf course, he was hitting driver where he probably shouldn't have been hitting driver just to make the crowd happy. Yeah. And they loved him. They absolutely loved him. You know, that tournament was down south and, you know, he's a, he's a yeah. stereotypical country boy. Yeah. But the the I mean, he, he kind of took golf to a, a different audience for the first time. Well, I John think Daly. he was one of the first great loud personalities in golf, really. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think it paved the way for so many others to come in and actually be able to express themselves and, yeah. you know, dress differently and talk differently. And I think yeah. it, it was a real break from the norm and the tradition that golf had had for so long. Yeah. And look, he was a drinker and, you know, he, he made no secret of that. He drank a lot. Well, you've got a some lot. college stories. Oh, well, <laughs> when, when, when John Daly was... When he was a senior at Arkansas, yes. I had just arrived as a freshman in at Texas Tech, and I quickly learned that one of three things happened every single week that Texas Tech and Arkansas was playing in the same event. And there was one, he'd either get drunk and steal the team bus, go for a joyride. <laughs> Two, he'd get drunk and destroy a hotel room. Yep. Or three, he would knock it on a par four that was undrivable. Yeah. There was one hole one week, and we, I think a lot of people, especially down here, all know the first hole at Huntingdale. 391 metres, dog leg lightless, slightly to the left, and the second shot goes up a hill. He knocked it on a hole like that once. <laughs> I mean, it was downwind, but that hole's undrivable, even today. Yeah. This is back in the 80s, and he dropped. He, he knocked it on a hole like that. It, what, it, he was an unusual man. Then he disappeared, and then the next time I saw him was at that PGA when he was the 11th alternate. Mm -hmm. uh, Nick Price pulled out and he got his caddy, Squeaky. Squeaky had never seen anything like it. You know, he, um, I think Nick Price was the birth of one of his kids. How about that though? 11th alternate. Yeah. And the PGA Tour commissioner called him up and said, hey, buddy, I think you're going to get in. Yeah. If Nick Price's wife and we're, 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 he's on standby, <laughs> if, if she goes into labor, you're going to get a gig. So he drove all night mm. from Arkansas uh, to the event. And didn't have any practice rounds mm. and just got squeaky as the caddy. So squeaky was basically telling him what to do and John Daly didn't care. He'd just say, look, I'm going to carry this thing 306. Where's, where's 306? And squeaky tell him where to go. Um, so, you know, he had a great caddy and the caddy was ready for the week. But mm. John Daly had never seen Crooked Stick before in his whole life. So, you know, he wins that and then follows it up in 95 with a open championship win. Mm -hmm. At St Andrews, extraordinary. Beat Constantina Rocca. I mean, what he did in the last round was amazing. Constantina Rocca hit a great drive on the last hole, needed to birdie it, and then Chile dipped it in the Valley of Sin, and then got the putter out and the holder. What looked like a hundred foot putt. Yeah, and then got on the ground, and started crying. Constantina Rocca, so funny. Yeah. John Daly brushed it off and blitzed him. Yeah, blitzed him in the four hole playoff. Uh and you see that 30 for 30 and, you, and the vision comes back to you of him and Nick Pro uh, no, who was it? David Frost. There we go. It was David Frost, another South African. And they were up in Canada. Might have been the, might have been the Canadian Open. Yeah. It might have been the Skins. It might have been something. But it was in Canada. And David Frost, the vision of him on this hot day, David Frost has you know, got sweat on his brow and here's John Daly shaking and he's got his waterproof on and... You know, David Frost has you know, got an arm around him, doesn't know what to do. And then they show him a little bit later and he, he's got a cup of uh, Coca-Cola in his hand. He's trying to drink a cup of Coke and he can't put the cup of Coca-Cola to his mouth. His hands are shaking so much. So he, he was at that level. Mm. 
Um, the Sea Winner Seniors event is just remarkable. I mean, he's 51 years old now. Um, I don't know, the bogey out. It's yeah. a, it's it's. I don't know whether it's a good story or a sad. Well, I mean, what about set. what about for those many years where the government and the tournaments in Australia paid him big cash of to money come down to come down and play, and there was all that criticism about whether he was worth it or not. I reckon the box office he brought was probably worth it. Yeah, for a, for a couple of them. At, towards the oh. end, I think, towards the end where he was just rolling up and shooting. 20 over and just <laughs> taking the paycheck might have been a waste of cash but at the, I reckon the first few times they paid big money for him to come out he used to get on the back page of the yep. papers mate yep. so probably for the wrong reasons but he used to and, mm. and it gave the tournament life yeah. you know some of those tournaments that he played in had life because he was there uh, yeah he did some strange things and he's an unusual unit and when you watch the shape that he's in today, in that 30 for 30, he looks like he's 110 years old. Yeah. And he looks like he's had a really hard life. <laughs> he looks like he's enjoyed his life, though. But he had a win. He's won on that senior tour. I mean, yeah. seriously, he had a win there. You know, it's funny, when he was leading up to getting on the senior tour and doing stuff, he was always seen at, at, a, at the Hooters at yes. the Majors. And he'd rock up to it with his Winnebago, and he'd have this big trailer, and it had all the John Daly loud gear in the trailer. That's 25 bucks for a shirt and 50 bucks if he signed it. Yes. And he would just stay there in his Winnebago at Hooters until he sold that entire trailer. Once that was done, he'd move on. That's how he's making some money. Yep. You know, he might have made 100,000 bucks that week yep. selling stuff from the trailer <laughs> in his Winnebago with his wife there helping out, <laughs> getting selfies done the whole time. Yeah. I don't know whether he's a like, – well, I do. He's a tragic figure in the sport. And he always will be. And the other thing that I learned from that uh, Hit It Hard documentary, just how many balls he hit. Mm. He reckons he hit more balls than anyone. And and it's funny, you know, most golfers who have got anywhere will tell you, like I'll, I'll tell you, no, it's impossible that anyone hit any more balls than me. Mm. Every professional golfer will tell you the same thing, that no one hit more balls. And I, I kind of understand it and and i know that he did as well yep. because he had an unusual action yeah but somehow he made it work how many balls would you have hit a day at your peak marco when i was training to become a professional when i was f when i first moved to oakley which is a, a suburb where huntingdale golf club is i reckon i used to hit four or five hundred a day on average some days i'd hit 800 i never got to a thousand mm. i used to try to get to a thousand but there wasn't enough daylight yeah. but if you're fair dinkum if you're a kid listening to this right now You've got to practice every day yeah. and probably play five days a week yeah. to be any good. Yeah. Find a way. And that whether that's nine holes after school, practicing after school, whatever it is, you've got to practice every single day. And I'd say, look, school's got to be a priority, so yeah. let me change it because I used to wag school, and that's wrong. <laughs> Don't wag school, kids. <laughs> look where you ended up. <laughs> you've, got, you've got to practice every day yeah. on a golf course where the conditions are good. Don't, no good practicing on a golf course where the greens are rubbish. Don't practice Don't practice your putting where the greens are garbage. Mm. It's, it's worthless yep. because of the ball knocking. So it's exactly what we are talking about before. The, yep. You'll hit beautiful putts and you won't even know. The ball will dance all over the place. You you might hit a few, miss a few to the left because they've bounced left and then you're going to change your whole stroke because a few have gone left. So never, ever practice, even warm up on greens that are in bad shape. Uh, but you've got to find a way of hitting 100 to 200 balls every single day. Yep. Whether it's wedges, bunker shots, pitching, 
or, or a full five iron or yeah. drivers, whatever you do. And I think the most 200 balls a day. The most difficult thing to find is a place where you can hit off the grass. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Especially in a city. Yeah, that's true too. But if you find one of those places, then be the best driver of the golf ball yep. you can be. Mm. And maybe just, you know, always practice your wedges and pitching and your bunker shots and your chipping. Mm-hmm. You can always do that on bad greens. Yes. But don't practice three, four, six footers on bad greens. Yep. Maybe practice your 30 footers and just hope to get them close. Yeah. But on bad greens, don't take them seriously and don't do yourself any injustice. I reckon, I reckon a lot of players practicing on bad greens probably hurt their confidence too well, much. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was always lucky. Huntingdale used to have beautiful greens when I was a kid practicing, like amazing greens. Yeah. And uh, you know, I was always, I always felt lucky to be able to practice on on Huntingdale's greens. Yeah, and it makes you a better player. But some of the guys who I grew up with, who are beautiful hitters of the golf ball, they grew up on you know Sunshine Golf Club or Philip Johns did that. Some of the golf courses that back in the day had bad greens. They were never, ever good putters. Mm. They didn't know what was right and what was wrong, simply because the ball danced around every time they hit a six-footer. And I always felt sorry for those guys because they didn't have what I had, which was a beautiful putting surface to practice on. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm. I love it. It's good practicing. Hey, hey we're going to hear from uh, Yes, we're going to get Clayton. to a break, but uh, Mike Clayton after this. He's what, a you, guy. what do you get him on this well, one? Well, I got him on a few things, but the reason we got him on was because um, we're playing TBC Sawgrass, and I love it. I love watching this tournament, mm-hmm. and I wanted to get a golf purest view of what he thought about TPC Sawgrass. So we'll have a listen to Mike Clayton next. All right, a break. That's coming up next. Stick around. This is The Clubhouse. In your life have you seen anything like that? You're listening to The Clubhouse. Welcome back. It is The Clubhouse across Australia. Julian Bayard and Mark Allen with you. Great to have your company. Uh, Marco, during the week, uh, you had a chat with Mike Mike Clayton, one of the great uh, course designers we have in this country now. Mm. Uh, Did Barn Boogle Dunes and does a lot of uh, work around the sand belt. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, some to acclaim, some not. That doesn't matter. I, I reckon he does a fantastic job, Mike Clayton, and his heart's in the right place. Yep. Um, he is a golf purist. You can hear him on a number of podcasts uh, involving golf. Yep. And it's always great to have him on uh, my show, Chasing Birdies, during the week on 1116 SEN. Let's have a listen. If the USPGA was played in May, it would feel like a bigger event than kind of what it is? Um, maybe. The problem with the PGA is that there's no love for it outside of America. Yep. I mean, everyone everyone loves the Masters and the US Open and the British Open, but there's no love for the PGA. It doesn't matter when they play it, no one's ever going to love it, hmm. I don't think. And for me, it needs to go outside of America. I mean, you can't win that war, but yeah. if, if, they, if, if once every four years they went out of America and they took it around the world... It'd be massive. It, it, would, it would generate some affection for it, but... No one cares about it. You know, it's just the USPGA. It's a fourth major by a long way, and they can fool around with it all they like with dates, but it's never going to be any good until they take it to the world and get some respect around the world for it. I mean, you know, it's it's obviously a major and it's a big Mm. tournament, but I think it should travel around the world because, you know, as John Huggins often said, if you were starting out again to, to make a schedule for golf, you wouldn't have three of the four majors in America. So that one should be the one that moves around the world. And until they do that, then it'll just be the fourth major. And they can, as I said, they can fool around with it and move it to May, but it's not going to make any difference to it. Cleats, if you could win at the moment right now a Players' Championship or a PGA, what would you choose? Well, the PGA, of course. Because it's a major, but yeah, I think, it, I think it's arguable to say that the Players' Championship looks just as good on a bio, nearly. 
Well, except it's not a major. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's got the best field in golf. Yeah. Mm. And, and, you know, they keep going back to the, to the same course, which is a formula that works for the Masters, so people know it very well. To, you know, there's been a lot of drama over those last three holes, so not surprisingly, given how much water there is around. But, you know, it's a... It's the same thing. I mean, if they move the players' championship around the world, that would be a better event too. I mean, it's mm. just you know the, the golf world is so America centric that you know I think they miss a chance to take the, those great tournaments to other parts of the world and, and, and show them off. But in the end, the end, the rest of the world doesn't care about them the way they care about the other three majors. So I mean, you can toss up. I mean, what Steve Elkin won two players and one PGA, but I, mean, I still think the PGA is the most significant win. Of his career, yeah, I agree with that as well. Hey, Clates, the reason we got you on, uh, you're a great golf designer, and we love what you've done with Barn Boogle and around the world, Ben and Junes. It's a different type of architecture that we're seeing pop up, probably in the last twenty, fifteen to twenty years. It's almost like we've gone back to the old days. If in, in a lot of the golf courses that have been built in in sand belts right around the world, but this tournament appeals to so many people because of sixteen, particularly seventeen. And then what's in front of that player on 18 with a one-shot lead. I've been there and I enjoyed the golf course. I loved it. I think it's probably the best Queensland golf course I've ever played. That's how I describe it to people who have never been there uh, here in, in this country. When, when you look at the tournament and those holes that Pete Dye created, what's your view? I think what comes before, it's better. I mean, I think there are, there are a lot of good holes there. It was a horrible piece of love. It was a flat swamp in Florida. So he, he did a really good, he did a tremendous job. The, the, part, if, you, if you go back on, the, there's a website where you can go back and look at how golf courses used to be. And you, it was a it was a sandy, rugged, brutally difficult golf course when it was built. It, you know, it's been softened off a lot because it was incredibly controversial when it first opened. I mean, Jay Nicholas said, I never was any good at stopping a three on, on the bottom of it a vault of a Volkswagen when he first played it. Um, so there are lots of good holes. I mean, there are some great strategies. You've, you've got to move the ball. Well, it's more of a right-to-left golf course than a left-to-right course, but you've got to hit all the shots. And, of course, all the nerves at the end. I mean, my, you know, I think that Island Green's kind of... There's been some silly stuff happening. I mean, Len Matisse did a great job there one year that bounced over the back, and I think he made a seven and lost the tournament. And, but I look at that 18th hole and they've copied it all over America where the lake goes all the way to the green mm. as it does at the 18th at Coolum and the 18th at Sanctuary Cove, which are just copies of American golf courses, really. And the green, almost by definition, has to follow the curve of the lake. So you've got to kind of draw the tee shot then draw the second shot. So so the, arguably the best one of the greens from the outside of the dog leg, not the side closest to water. Mm. Yet you look at a much better hole in the way it uses water is the 16th at Commonwealth, where there's a massive advantage in driving close to the water. I mean, it's too short now for those long hitters, but there's a massive advantage in driving up against mm. the water on the left because the water doesn't go all the way to the green, so they could they were able to set the green the other way. Yeah. The further you went to right, to the right, the, the, the poorer the angle and the harder the shot. So, and you're landing on a downslope. Yeah, so, so the 16th at Commonwealth is a much better example of how to use water on a, on a tee shot. But, of course, in America, they can't help themselves. It has to go all the way to the green. But almost by definition, the green's got to follow the line of the lake, and those holes just don't work as well as the 16th at Commonwealth does, which is 
you know, a, a great waterhole. And if you were ever copying a dog leg left with a lake on the left, it would be the 16th and Commonwealth and not the 18th at the TPC course. There he is, Marco. Fascinating chat. He's a good man. Good course, too. Funny guy. Good course. I used to room with him. He Did and I you? used to room together when I first got out <laughs> on tour. Been, that would have been an experience. It was great fun, mate. <laughs> he looked after me. He, he was a fantastic fella, and I've got a, love, a lot of love for Mike Clayton. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe he's 60 years old. I played with him not long ago at Kerr Lewis Golf Club in the Pro-Am, and he shot 71, yep. which not bad. pretty good for an old bloke. Not bad. Pretty good for an old bloke who only hits at about 180 metres off the tee <laughs> these days. I was impressed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I played with one of those blokes on the week, you know, during the week. No, he's oh, good I'll fun. You what. All right, we're going to get to a break. Uh, your masterclass. To finish hey, I've got show. a cracking masterclass Ooh, after the yes, break, too. Stick around. That's next. Marco's Masterclass. Yeah, that time of the week, it is time to get a free golf lesson from Mark Allen, uh, the best teacher in golf on radio, on the clubhouse. And we do it each and every week for Club Mandalay Golf Course. Play golf at Club Mandalay. It's golf in Melbourne's north. Book online, clubmandalay.com.au. Save 10% mm. when you use the code CMGOLF. Hit the golf course, play golf at Club Mandalay. Marco. Rightio. Uh, one of the big things in golf is hitting through the shot, not hitting at the ball. So many. And I mean this, I say so many a lot. Yeah. But so many players that I play with who play once a week or came to golf late, they hit at the ball. It's like they're tro- chopping a piece of wood, mm-hmm. you know, and they know the axe is going to stop. You can't do that in our game. And just telling somebody to hit through the ball doesn't always work as well because what they've been doing for their golfing life, let's say it's 10, 15, 20 years, that's hard to change. And they just, you know, make the club go a little bit faster through the ball. But in actual fact, your whole body must go through the ball. That's what hitting through the ball is. Because you can imagine, if I just hit at the ball, the club's going to keep going, but my body Hmm. stops. And if your body stops, that's when, if you're a professional golfer and been playing for a long time, if your body stops, normally the ball goes left. But if your body stops and you're an amateur, the ball can go left and right. Mm -hmm. And then it's a bit like those little short putts that you're putting on with a bad golf course, you can bump left them, and then you don't know what's going on. You don't know whether you've got a problem that makes it go left or you've got a problem <laughs> that makes it go right. So hitting through the ball is very important, and it's so simple to fix this. If your right shoulder, if you got it, so if you're a right-handed golfer and your right shoulder actually goes through until it hits your chin or goes past your chin, then by definition, your whole body has gone through the shot. So instead of worrying about hitting at the ball, Worry about your shoulder going all the way through past your chin. Mm. And once that shoulder's gone past your chin, you're actually halfway through your follow-through. And your body has gone through the shot. So it's a lot of reason why people don't get off their back foot. It's a lot of reason why people hit up on the ball. Mm-hmm. It's, a lot of, it's a big reason why people stay on their back foot. Mm. Because they're hitting at the ball, yeah, and they're hoping get, it goes up. Get fat, hit it fat, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so it's an old time. It's a it's a really old time tip mm. to help you out. And I love tips. A lot, a lot of the you know the purest golf teachers hate tips because mm-hmm. they want you to come and get lessons. <laughs> but good tips are good tips. And I, I read this in in a Sam Snead uh, book the other day uh, that uh, a fellow showed me. And the right shoulder going through and past the chin and the follow-through was one of Sam's big things yeah, right. that helped him hit through the shot. So stop hitting at the ball. It's hard to do if you just think don't hit at the ball. Start pushing that right shoulder past your chin mm-hmm. through the follow-through. And by definition, you will be hitting through the shot. Good tip. I like it. I want you to do that. This I'll do week. that. Yeah. It becomes very consistent. If, yeah. it does, if it happens every single time, then the same thing will happen 
through impact every single time, and then you can make adjustments that That's make right. you a very accurate player. Easy. It also creates power. That'll help. That's just a little side effect. And that'll give you a little bit yeah. of extra distance. A little bit of side, a little side effect. Wet might, conditions. Might give you an extra 20 yards. Yep. No, yeah. Not Who much knows? run this time of year. That's it. And hopefully, hey, and all committees out there <laughs> listening, every committee on a clay-based course and even some of the sand belt, winter rules. Yep. It's a good thing. If there's mud on the ball, put it up on the chalkboard at the first tee. Winter rules are now applying. Mud on the ball, mark the ball and wipe the mud off. Do something for your members and make the game better. Make it happen. Love it. Good on you, buddy. I'll see I'll you next week. Speak to you next week. See you, buddy.